All right, so here's your list. I'm gonna, we're nearly done with this, but you will have it in your mind because you've heard me say it nearly every Sunday evening that how do we divide up all these dispensations? We look at this and we say that the primary characteristics of each uh, dispensation so that we can look at the scripture and, and try and divide them down are these a different governing relationship in each economy? We're going to see that very distinctly when we move from law to grace. Uh, a result in res- resp- responsibility given to man. We're going to see that uh, through the teachings of the Apostle Paul as he really gives the church its marching orders. Uh, revelation not previously, previously given. We're going to see that this evening. That's why Paul always talks. He says, yeah, I tell you a mystery. Because it's revelation not previously given. This is why we call this progressive revelation. That God is revealing of himself what he needs to to the people for that age. We're in the church age. One of the privileges we have is we know more about God and his character through his complete written word than those that have went before. People in the Old Testament didn't see the church or the church age. We call this the peaks of prophecy. They looked at all the big events that were prophesied for Israel through the Abrahamic covenant and the land, the seed, and the blessing covenant that we looked at last week. They looked at all them, but the church was in the valley. It wasn't if they, the Lord, if the Israel had accepted their Messiah, the next prophetic event would have been that kingdom. But the church came in. The church came in, and so it's a mystery. For those in the Old Testament, for us it's not a mystery. It's been revealed to us. And we, that's in our uh, dispensation. So they're the primary characteristics. The secondary characteristics, which is the easiest ones, and that's what we've really been focusing on every week, haven't we? A test, failure, judgment, and then we've been weaving in grace. So, let's have a look. We're at the dispensation of the age of grace. John 1.17 says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So we're into this dispensation. Um, And that doesn't mean that God wasn't gracious before Christ went to Calvary's cross. God has always been a gracious God. Always been a gracious God. And I hope that we've seen that as we've went along in our studies. But with the coming of Christ, there is a unique display of the grace of God. Calvary's cross was a unique display of the grace of God. This is more than God uh, sparing eight people from the flood. This is more than God giving his elect people Israel the system of the law so they could stay right with him. This is much more than that. This is God himself putting on human flesh, which we celebrate at the incarnation, walking amongst us, living a perfect life, and then that perfect one goes to Calvary's cross to take the wrath of God for humanity that whosoever comes to him in repentance and faith can receive that gift. That's a unique display of grace. That's a unique display of grace. And, and really it should bring us back to the privilege we have of being part of this age. You know, we look back upon the cross. All those that have come before in these previous dispensations, they look forward to the cross, not knowing the full context of that. They knew parts of it, right from Genesis, you remember? There would be a redeemer, but they didn't know what that fully meant. We can look back and we can see it all from a privileged position and we can say God was in every movement of every moment to bring about the events of the cross. How amazing is that? It's amazing, isn't it? 
So we're part of this dispensation. We're part of this age. And, and it's called the dispensation of grace or the age of grace primarily because of that. It is an outpouring of grace. Christ came, he fulfilled the law and he brought about something new. Salvation by grace alone and Christ alone. New to the cross. Not new to the people. They knew the Redeemer was going to come. But the context of that, how that was formed, was in the cross on Calvary. And that's grace. Amazing grace. And so this dispensation, it really begins from Acts chapter 2 with the birth of the church, really. And then it goes all the way and covers the entire period of the church age until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ for his church. We call that the rapture. So this is a pretty pretty long uh, dispensation. You know, we're 2,000 years plus, nearly, in between these events. Again, that speaks of the grace of God in this. And this dispensation, it's, it's, it's the one that we live in. It's, it's one that is unique in a way because of the mysteries that are being revealed. The Apostle Paul is the key figure in this. Every dispensation, every age has a, has a key figure. The Apostle Paul is the key figure here. If you want doctrine about the church, it is the Apostle Paul's writings that you go to. You can pick up other stuff from, from Acts and stuff like that. But remember, that's a transitional book. You want church doctrine, you go to Paul. Because Paul was uniquely qualified to teach church doctrine. Peter didn't have a clue. He didn't have a clue. He would have taught you all about the kingdom. All about the promise that was given. He didn't get this whole thing. That's why Paul had to withstand him to the face. He had to correct him in some issues over the dietary laws and how Paul, uh, Peter was falling back into sitting with the, with the Jews and segregating them. Paul's like, no, you don't get this. You don't get this. So Paul um, reveals more about this dispensation than any other in the New Testament. And uh, if you turn to me in Ephesians chapter 3, let's get this started this evening. Ephesians 3 gives us a little, little bit of how Paul is, 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 is the man for this age. Uniquely qualified, uniquely taught, I believe, to be the one who is the apostle to the Gentiles, to the church. Ephesians 3, Paul makes this clear. Verse 1. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation, that's that Greek word economia, you know what we've been teaching, of the grace of God which is given to me, to you word, how that by revelation he made it known unto me the mystery as I wrote afore in a few words. Who is Paul talking about that? Who is the he in there? The he in there is Christ. It's Christ. He said, He made known to me of the mystery, whereby, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, and is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. This is, this is all a mystery in the Old Testament. 
Wherefore, I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than all of the saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 9, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. So Paul's the main figure here. He's the unique character, and he's the one that we get the supreme teaching and church doctrine from because he is uniquely qualified with this mystery of the dispensation of the gospel of grace that is given to him to go and teach and take that's primarily going to be to a gentile audience that's what the church ends up being it begins with a jewish uh, drive and it fades from jew to gentile the gentiles take up charge and it's a gentile body today primarily it is so again, this is the dispensation that belongs to us. We're not in the dispensation of law. Christ came to fulfill the law. We're not removed from the moral side of the law. That would be a nonsense to say that because the law came from God and God is good. How can the law be bad? It, it can't be. So when God says, do not kill, yes, do not kill. We stick to it. We're not under the law, but we don't throw it out the window. We take that which is moral, not ceremonial, that which is moral, and we apply it in our lives and do our best to live under that standard. But we're under grace and we're a privileged people to be in the age of grace. A privileged people. We've looked at Israel and you've often heard me say that word privilege. And that's important. Because when God hones in on a people, it's a privilege. The very fact that God wants to do business with us is a privilege. It's a privilege. So let's have a look at this dispensation and work through it the same way that we've worked through all of the other ones. Firstly, the responsibility. Um, what's the responsibility in the age of grace? Really, simply, you want to boil it down like in every, every dispensation? It's obedience. But what is it obedience to? In this age, I believe it's obedience to uh, the new covenant. And remember that the, the Old Testament scriptures have nothing to say about the church. Nothing to say about the church. It's a mystery. It's hidden. We read that in verse 9 of Ephesians 3, didn't we? That, but here's the thing that Paul is, is teaching. He says, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. What is this fellowship of the mystery? It's the privilege of being part of the new covenant. And really, that's what the, the mystery is. We'll look a bit later on. In Romans at this and we'll, and we'll see um, but but Paul is given this and it's to all men that all men would see that all men would see that Christ was indeed saviour of the world that he is the redeemer not just for the Jews but for the Gentiles for anybody that would come unto him in repentance and fear during the age of the law Israel was to be the witness they were to be laid to the nations we move to the age of grace and we'll find that it's the church is to be the one that takes the messiah to the world and uh, and and, and uh, usher uh, people into the messiah and part of that new covenant so um let's just turn to romans 11 let's turn to romans 11 i want you to see this in terms of privilege you know israel were god's people 
And they were to take the truths that they had been privileged with to the world. And they didn't. And, and you know, here's the thing. Here's the relationship between uh, Israel and the church in the church age as we, as we are now. Remember, Israel was God's elect people. We looked at this at the very start. How they were the recognized wife of Jehovah. They were then the rejected wife of Jehovah. And that's why we see them now. And ultimately they'll be the restored wife of Jehovah. But Paul deals with this in Romans 11 verse uh, 23. You know, so he indicates because of their rejection of the Messiah. They have been put aside. It's a good way of putting it. Put aside. And the Gentiles have taken their place as God's witness in the world. But when Israel repents. They will be grafted in again. This is Romans 11, verse 23. And as we start this, what I want to say to you this evening is this olive tree, and you may have looked at this before, is, is not Israel, it's not Christ, it's privilege. Privilege. That's why this is important. Privilege. This has nothing to do with anything other than God honing in on the people and giving them a lack of privilege. Not salvation, privilege. Let's read it. Verse 23. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Who is this? This is Israel. For if they were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which are that be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So this olive tree of privilege belonged to Israel first. They were the elect nation of God. They were chosen by God, not based on anything that they did, not based on their stature, their size or anything, just based on the sovereign choice of God. Paul deals with this in Romans 9, 10 and 11, that God chose them as he is able to do, as he is sovereign to do, and he put them into this tree of privilege. And the privilege was to be a light to the nations, to be God's elect nation amongst, amongst a sea of heathen. Because of their failure, they're put aside, they're cut out, and the wild branches, the Gentiles, who were not God's elect people, that doesn't mean that they weren't able to be saved. That's not what it's about. It's about service. It's about privilege of being God's vehicle and God's vessel for the age. Paul says the wild branches are, were grafted in. They took up privilege. Who is, belongs the privilege now to be a light to the nations? It's the church. Who belongs the privilege to be heralds of the gospel? It's the church. Who belongs the privilege to be the guardians of truth as revealed in the Holy Word? It's the church. But that was Israel's job. That was Israel's job. Paul says, you know, if, if, if God is able and willing to put aside the natural branches then can he not bring them back in again? Verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until, that word until, means that there's something left to come. The fullness of the Gentiles shall become 
in. And so Israel shall be saved, that is written, they shall come out of Zion to deliver and turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Paul talks about this concept of the olive tree. And, and really, I do believe it's privilege. And, and Paul gives a warning here in Romans 11. He says that, that, that they can be absolutely grafted back in. And, and one day they will be back in privilege. Because the Messiah is coming again for them. And they will be a privileged people once again. When's that going to happen? That's going to happen in the millennial kingdom. Which we'll look at the next time we get to look at this. That Israel will once again be a privileged people in that kingdom. Paul says, you know, God can do it. And in verse 18, he says this, Boast not against the branches, but if they boast, they bear not the root, but the root bear, bear uh, but the, not the root, but the root thee. Thou will say again, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear, for if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, he, lest he also spare not thee. So again, Paul talks about the very concept that we deal with today is that the Gentiles boast in their privilege and they reject Israel and they say that God is done with Israel and finished with Israel, that those uh, branches have been cast off and will not get back into the tree and, and the church has replaced Israel. And Paul very clearly says, boast not against the natural branches. Don't take your privilege and abuse it. God is not finished with Israel. They're the natural branches. One day they're going to be grafted back in the privilege. But the privilege is now yours. And that's part of being part of the church age. That we have entered into this uh, covenant with God that we had no part of. But we are privileged now to be part of it we're privileged to be part of it and 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 that's important because it brings with it responsibilities responsibilities for the unbeliever in this age we, we've already looked at this that that all men are responsible to respond to christ his messiahship his sacrifice calvary the gospel whatever you want to say it that's what paul said in ephesians name all men so for the unbeliever in this age, it's very simple. The responsibility is to respond to the grace that has been shown on Calvary's cross. This is not something that was done in secret. It was there for all. And that's the responsibility for the unbeliever. But the believer, uh, it's more than that. For the believer, it's not just about accepting that. That's the start of it. That's how you become a believer. That's how you enter into the new covenant by the new birth. But once that happens, then you have a responsibility in this age because you have now entered in to that privilege that we've talked about in Romans chapter 11. So what's the responsibility? Number one, for us as the church, the body of Christ, is to keep doctrine pure. That's a responsibility. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter number 1. 1 Timothy 1. Or 1 Timothy, chapter number 1 and verse 3. 
As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Remember, this is given by Paul, given to Timothy, um, to teach, charge them to teach no other doctrine. This is important truth, that they are to be guardians of the truth. We are to be guardians of the truth. That's our responsibility in the church age as believers. Um, before you become a believer, you have no responsibility to be a guardian of the truth. You're an enemy of the truth. But once you enter in by the new birth and become part of this privilege to be the body of Christ, it's all of our responsibility to keep doctrine pure. Turn to chapter 6 a little bit later on. Verse number 3. Here again, Paul says this. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof come envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men, corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from such, withdraw thyself. So Paul says there's a, there's a responsibility, and there's, you know, we can look at many other verses, to keep doctrine pure. Keep it pure. That's a responsibility for the body of Christ today, to keep doctrine pure, to contend for the faith. Isn't that what Jude says? Jude 3, Beloved, when I give all diligence to write on you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort to you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once, singular, once delivered unto the saints. Doctrine is not ever evolving. It's not. Progressive revelation of God was ever evolving until the church age came and God stopped with his revelation. He gave us it all in this book. So there are doctrines that are lost and found again. No doubt about that. You'll see that in church history. But it's not an ever increasing and changing and evolving thing. The doctrine we have should be the same doctrine that was delivered to the saints once for all at the early church. It should be because our responsibility during the church age given by Paul from the inspiration of the Holy Ghost and, and under the, the, the ordinances and the, the, the direction of God was for us to keep doctrine pure. To keep it pure. That's the responsibility for the CF person. And that's what we really want to talk about tonight. Because we are the body of Christ. So how has the church done? <laughs> not good. Not good. Not good. It's a, it's a familiar tale, isn't it? Not good. How does the failure come? Well, let's have a look. It can be seen in two ways. So if the responsibility into this age of grace is twofold. One for the unbeliever to respond. God will have all men come unto himself. He has revealed himself. Men are able to come unto him. The cross is made away. They are responsible to respond to that. But as we've seen, because we live in this age, unfortunately, 
There hasn't been the mass turning to the Lord. In fact, it's been the other way. Throughout human history, the true church has always been a remnant. Always been a remnant. That's a fact. That's a fact. I'm talking about the true church, the believing church, the body of Christ has been a remnant. We have. So most men reject the gift of salvation. You know, you take those Christmas tracks out, you, you go and speak to somebody at Christmas and say, you know, Jesus Christ came and he came to this earth to, to, to go to the cross and pay for your sins so you can be saved. They'll just laugh at you, half of them. I don't need saved. God doesn't exist, etc., etc., etc. Most men have rejected. The majority of humanity will not come to a saving knowledge of the Lord in this age. And uh, that's just the way it is, unfortunately. That doesn't mean we're defeatist. That doesn't mean that we don't try. But that's the way human history and human hearts are going in the church age. They're turning from God and, and, and not to God. But the second way failure is seen is in, res- in relation to the church, the body of Christ, and our responsibility. Because we have not kept doctrine pure. We haven't. We haven't. Now, you know, I, I hope that we as a church are doctrinally as sound as we can be. But we are fallible. There may be little things that we don't get right, but there are only little things, if any. But there are so many churches out there today that doctrinally have so far departed from the faith that was once given for all that it's, that it's outrageously laughable and that, in, 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 the, in, the, in the worst way it is and you know Paul talks about this let's have a look 2 Timothy chapter 3 see you know it, it's, it's, it's it's a crying shame when the unbelievers reject the truth but how much more worse is it when professing believers reject that same truth as revealed in the word 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times will come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, laid away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. Paul goes on to say in verse 10, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity of patience. Notice what he says first. As he compares himself, what does he say? First of all, it's doctrine. Doctrine. Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine is the foundation for everything else. 
Paul says that this last days is going to get worse. Perilous times will come. It's going to wax worse and worse. And there are many that go about today and say, no, 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 no. That's not what's going to happen in this church age. In fact, what we're going to see is things are going to get better. And they're going to get better. This is kingdom theology, dominion theology. This is this mentality where we're taking parts of the earth back for the Lord. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to polish the place up so it's, it's lovely and rosy. And then the Lord will look down from heaven. You know, and I'm paraphrasing here, but this is the truth of what they teach. The Lord's going to look down from heaven and say, oh, it's ready for me now. I can come. And they believe there's going to be a great worldwide revival. And when that revival happens, it will usher in the return of the Lord. Because when there's a worldwide revival, people's hearts are right. And when people's hearts are right, the place is right. And if the place is right, the Lord will step foot in that place. And they miss the truth that the Lord comes to make it right. Because humanity by itself, as we see in this dispensation, we feel our hearts fall to sin. Those that start off with good doctrine will fall away. The early church started off and then it became something it was never meant to be. Christendom that we see today. There is no last days world revival. There will be a worldwide revival. There will be. You can read about that in the book of Revelation. But that revival, the church won't be there. The church is gone. That revival will be led once again by Israel. The last time there was a worldwide evangelizing campaign was when the early church under Jewish leadership went out into the known world and preached the gospel. You can look at this in the New Testament. Paul says it and says it again. The next time that happens is when the 144,000 of Revelation chapter number 7 are given that great commission by God and that protection by God and they go out into the world. That's why when you get to Matthew 24, which talks about this time to come, this tribulation period where the church is gone, it has these little words and the gospel is preached until all the kingdom and then the end shall come, give or take. That's what it says. That's going to happen. But anything to do with the church age. The church age, unfortunately, is one that is marked with apostasy and a slide from doctrine. And as the church Christendom grows, we find that the truth gets watered down more and more and more and more. You look in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you look at the churches of Asia Minor and those seven churches and they, they have a part to play. They show us a, a spiritual condition that any church can have. They were real churches in a real place but I also think there's a prophetic teaching in there. I really do believe. And as you look through those different churches you can see stages of the church age. You can see Smyrna uh, or sorry, Ephesus typical of the apostolic church. The uh, Smyrna, the suffering church, the early church. Pergamos is the, the state church as we see uh, Roman Catholicism come in and church and state or Mary Theatera is, is the papal church. After that, that, that really we call the, the dark ages. Sardis, the, the Reformation. Philadelphia, what a church that is. That's a picture of the great uh, evangelical movement out of the church in the 19th, uh, uh, 19th 18th century. As the church goes out and all these great missionaries go out into the world and Christ has a good report of that church. Then we get to Laodicea, the last church. And we call that the church of the last days. 
And the Lord doesn't have much good to say about that. He says to the church that, you know, he will spew them out of their mouth. They're neither hot nor neither cold. They're disgusting to him. Why? He says, you know, you think you're rich, but you're poor. You can see, but you're blind. He says, you're wretched. You think you're self-sufficient. You think your numbers and your, your financial strength is a blessing, but you can't see the truth that you're spiritually corrupt. And I think that's a picture of the church today. In many churches today where, you know, the, the, the congregations have thousands in them, thousands in them, where the pastors, you know, have planes and, and, and jets and limousines and big houses and book deals and, you know, guest appearances, you know, 20, 30,000 pounds just to get them to come and, and say. And you say, well, why, why have they got, you know, why have they got you know, thousands of people? Why, why can, 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 can churches like this not get thousands of people? Well, here's the thing. The doctrine has been polluted. And the truth of the word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, that should pierce to your very heart, has been diluted and changed into something else. And when those churches uh, look at themselves, they think we are rich because they have big buildings and big bank balances. But the Lord looks on their spiritual condition and says, you're disgusting, you're wretched, you're naked, you're blind, you're poor. Why? Because you have failed to keep doctrine pure. You've departed from it. You've departed from it. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Peter says this, but there were many, there were false prophets also amongst the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they be with feigned words, make merchandise of you whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. What a word of warning, but that's what we see today. That's what we see today. That's why some of these churches, so-called, are are packed out. Because the people have itching ears. They're hearing what they want to hear. They're hearing that, you know, uh, you you, you sow sow a seed, you'll receive a blessing. The prosperity gospel. You know, your best life now. It's all about the flesh. It's all about them. And the doctrine has been watered down so much so that it can hardly be seen or it can hardly be tasted or it can hardly be touched. You don't have to go too far. And now this has crept into denominations that were once great denominations. We've seen recently, haven't we, with Methodism. I wonder what Charles Wesley would think if he rode in on his horse and <laughs> seen what had happened. You know, I don't agree with everything Charles Wesley taught and John Wesley taught, but I do know this. They would be horrified if they seen what was happening today within that denomination. They're not the first. The Lutherans have gone. The all sorts, you know, homosexuality is, is being accepted into the church body and being promoted as acceptable for the child of God. 
And it's not. It's not. We just need to read the word of God. And it's clear. It's clear. But doctrine hasn't been kept pure. We have the, the move to, to, to gender neutralize God. Where we know we can't say our Heavenly Father because, you know, that's so last century. We have to change it. We have to change it. I could go on and on. You know, I don't have to look too far that, to the point now that every single doctrine of truth, every ground and pillar is now under attack or has been overcome by the, the body of the church. You know, creation, you know, wouldn't it be great that if that was all we were just fighting over against evolution? But now it's everything. The deity of Christ has been under attack from day one. The very principles of God, marriage, everything. And that's the professing church, a lot of them. Christendom. You know, what's happened? There's been a falling away. There's been a falling away. There's been a departure from sound doctrine. We have not kept doctrine pure. Because it's been sidelined to fellowship. And fellowship's important, but not at the expense of doctrine. Or it's been, it's been sidelined for social action. And I, I believe the church should be involved in helping the poor. That's, that's a commandment. But not at the expense of doctrine. Because doctrine comes from the word. And who is the word? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head of the body. This age of grace from the church perspective from the believers perspective there has been a definite failure definite failure no doubt about it what comes after failure Elaine? judgment you got it what's the judgment well we're going to see that this age will end indeed with judgment what's that judgment it's a great tribulation it's a great tribulation that is judgment like the world has never seen. You say, well, how is that so? Because the flood, that was a judgment. But we're going to see, and we're going to see that uh, the scriptures tell us that that time will be like no other time that was ever before in terms of judgment. Well, here's the thing. The flood was a very cataclysmic and very sudden. When it came, it came. And actually... That was uh, severe, but not as severe as what you're going to see in the Great Tribulation, where it's just horrific. Day after day of living life, as God pours out his wrath, is horrific. That actually, you know, to be, be facing that, you would prefer the flood because it would be over and done. So, this tribulation, now, let me, let me caveat this and say that Scripture is clear. It's a time of Jacob's trouble. But. There is a Gentile world there. And when you look at the judgments, they're poured out and they fall upon the world. This is not a good time to be, be uh, in the world. You know, God is pouring out his wrath from heaven. And it is a, a, a period that affects the whole world. Yes, the purpose and the primary focus is about the restoration of Israel. But there's a whole world that is feeling the effects of that. And, and it is a judgment. And this is the judgment that comes at the end of the church age. When the church age is up, when the raptures come, at some point in the future after that, it could be anywhere up to three and a half years possibly, I think. 
But the next thing that comes is that judgment and it's poured out upon the world. So for the unbelievers, they're going to face that. The question is, will the church go through this tribulation? Now, I know that if you've been in this church any length of time, you're well schooled. And the answer, I believe, is absolutely no. The body of Christ will be raptured before this judgment comes. And we'll look at that a bit later on in grace. The invisible church, the church that truly believes, will be taken out of this judgment. But the apostate church, the visible church, the unbelieving church, will be left behind to face this judgment with the rest of the world. And they will indeed go through what we call the great tribulation. That is the judgment that is upon them. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2 verse 3 says this. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there be a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Now again, there's different teachings on this. and My personal opinion that this falling away is the rapture of the church and the apostasy of the church. I think it's both. I don't think it's an either or. The, the, the word in the Greek can be used in different senses. So some people will say this talks about the rapture of the church. It's a physical departure of the church. Then the man of sin will be revealed. Um, others will say, well, it's about the apostasy of the church during the church age. And I don't think it's neither or. I think it's both. Both are very visible. That yes, the, 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 the man of sin won't be revealed until the church is raptured. But also there is this falling away, this apostasy that has been highlighted in uh, Paul's teaching. So I, I believe both are happening. And, you know, this is the time that they don't receive sound doctrine. They have itching ears and, and really they, they, they reap what they sow. And if the Lord was to come back today, those that are gathered in those churches that do not teach pure doctrine, now I'm talking about the fundamentals of the faith, and have gone down a, a prosperity line or a line that has no repentance and faith in it, that the blood of Christ has been removed, the sacrifice of Christ has been removed, the sufficiency of the word of God has been removed. If the Lord was to turn up and take the church, they would be left to face this tribulation because they're going to reap what they've sowed. They'll reap what they've sowed. Because God's day of grace is not going to last forever. It's not. You know, the, the church age is a dispensation, is a long one. It's a long one, 2,000 years. But that's not going to last forever. There will be a judgment, and the day of judgment is coming upon God's church. But it, uh, a, a day of judgment, sorry, is coming upon the unbelieving church of this day. It is not coming upon the believing church. The believing church is the body of Christ. Now, we know the scriptures say that we will not face the wrath to come. Right? That's what it says. We're the body of Christ. And here's a, here's a little thing I like to use for this that really helps and I think would be a good argument for those that want to bring us through this, this period where we as a believing church face that. Is that if we're the body of Christ today, here's what I want to say to you. The body of Christ faced the wrath of God once on Calvary's cross. The body of Christ will never face the wrath of God again. So the body of Christ, physically, Christ on earth, faced the wrath of God once at Calvary's cross. He said then, it is finished. Tetelestai, paid in full. 
It is done. And because of that, those that enter into grace through the new birth become the body of Christ. And the body of Christ will never face the wrath of God again. Never. We're spared from the wrath to come. Because Christ paid for this. The price was paid in full. Done. So that concept, it's, it's simple to get really. The body of Christ took the wrath of God once. The body of Christ today will not take the wrath of God again. We're spared from that wrath to come. We're spared from that judgment. Praise the Lord. And that's where the grace is. That's where the grace is. That God spares us from this wrath. He raptures the church. He comes from his, his body, his bride. And we go to be with him. You know, we have the passages in Thessalonians, the great passages. Where Paul, you know, tells us 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 53. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, verse 16, those famous passages about the rapture, I believe. It says this, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Then chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 9 to 10. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. The body of Christ faced the wrath of God once. The body of Christ will never face the wrath of God again. We're not going to go through that tribulation. And that is grace. That is grace. Not only has God saved us as the believing church, but... He's going to take us out so that we don't face that tribulation to come. A time like none other, Scripture tells us. So, let's, let's wrap this up. Because I want to talk a little bit about application here. Because we're living in this age. It's not over. It's begun. It began, Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church. But we're living in this age now. And, and you know, that makes it of prime interest to us. That makes this message easy to apply because we know the responsibility. If we're here this evening and we're saved, we've accepted that responsibility to accept the gospel and enter in to the privilege of being God's people. But then the next application comes that our responsibility is to be uh, guardians of the truth, to keep doctrine pure. And that's a fight. And that's a battle. And that begins with each and every one of us studying the word of God, learning to discern, making distinctions between Israel and the church and being able to apply these in real world life situations. To understand that we're not under law, we're under grace, but to understand what that really means. We have our responsibilities as the church. We are the bride of Christ. And it does break bring great responsibilities and accountabilities it does let me tell you a little story 
This is a, a story that's told from ages past. It's about a prince and a peasant girl who fall in love. And the story's a little, little difficult to understand because on the one hand, the prince has everything at his disposal. He's from a royal family. He's from a privileged position. And he has everything that he wants and could have because he's the prince. There's never been a more perfect specimen of a man that ever lived. Nothing about him was common. It wouldn't be an exaggeration to say he was the perfect catch. But then on the other hand of this love story, you have a peasant girl who has no heritage, no royal lineage, has no money, has no prestige, has no place in society. And actually to look at, she's nothing to look at. She's fallen out of the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down. Her clothes are a wreck. They're wretched. They're dirty. But yet the prince seen something in her. And when he looked at her, he believed that she was someone to die for. And because the prince determined that he couldn't bear to live without her, he asked her to be his bride. The angels in heaven listened expectantly at his proposal and she accepted. The prince promised his bride that he would come back to her soon one day. And the peasant turned princess pledged to be faithful as she awaited the return of her prince. And at this point, this story could be any number of fairy tales. But here's what happens and things take a little turn for the worst. You see, you would expect the bride, the one who was in the gutter, who that prince had come along and lifted up and brought in to his family. You'd expect that bride to ever have the prince on her mind. To be always talking about him. To be always thinking about him. To be preparing for the coming wedding. But the peasant turned princess of that story rarely ever talks about the prince that lifted her up from the dirt and muck. And by the way she lived, she couldn't even tell that she was a bride of a prince. Destined to be married into the princely line. And more frequently than not, you, you would find her spending time with the, the people of the village rather than the prince's people. In fact, when you looked at her, you would actually find that there was no discernible, visible sign that you could see that actually she was married to that prince. Her behavior was not becoming of a bride of a prince the lifestyle that she led the things that she did and she become, became more blatant and that she wouldn't hide the way she lived and she wouldn't hide how she ran off with other men now can you imagine a peasant girl so fortunate to have a prince come and choose her and yet 
When the prince says, I'll return, you prepare to go and live a lifestyle just the same as once you did whenever the prince came. You'd be horrified. You'd say, well, what's wrong with her? Why is she doing that? I mean, isn't that just, you know, lifting her fist and shaking it in, in, in rebellion to the love that she's been shown? I mean, that prince could have picked anybody. He didn't have to do what he did. But he did. And how is she repaying him? By running back to the old people and the old life and the old things, never mentioning them, not being ready for his coming, not even thinking about his return. How could a peasant forget about her prince? Is it possible for a bride to forget about her groom? You see, folks, the church age is that very story. It's that very story. We have forgotten our prince. And we live like the world. Not ready for his return. Not ready for his coming. That prince, the Lord Jesus, is not on our lips as he should be. His word is not in our heart as it should be. And when we look at the church as a whole, we've seen and can see how that the peasant girl who was given everything privily has rejected and rebelled against all that she's been given. That's the church as a whole. And because of that, the great tribulation will come. The unbelieving church will be judged. But for us today, here's the thing. How are we going to respond to the responsibility we have? Because that prince of the story is our prince. And the peasant in the story is us. And the Lord has lifted us out of the miry clay. He has placed us upon the rock. We are his. And we should live like that in the age of grace. So that people would look to the common king and turn to him.